Well, as she mentioned, I do like to write. I don't get to do it as often as I'd like, but I really enjoy it. And whenever I do write something, I have to come up with a title for it. And so because I often come up with titles, I notice titles. Wherever I go or whether I'm on the internet, different blogs or articles, even magazines, I notice the titles that are out there. And there's one, that, one type of title that I notice often. I'm sure you do as well. It's the ones that promise some kind of success, kind of like a list. You know, five ways to sleep better or ten ways to have a successful life. I'm sure you've seen these, these articles with their success tips, and we like them. We like them because they take things that we want and they make them attainable or they make them simple. And so I did a fun little game with Google where I went on and I said a number, random numbers, like five ways to, and then I wanted to see what Google would come up with, or three ways to. So I found you a few of my favorites. Here they are. Uh, five ways to get taller. <laughs> I didn't read it, but I kind of wish I would have. Seven ways to annoy your friends. Yeah, I don't know who wants to read that. Eight ways to win tic-tac-toe, because that is very important. Go ahead and look it up. I'm sure you want to. Eleven ways to make it snow. Is that even a thing, right? Like, how could anyone make it snow? Thirteen ways. This one, I don't know. Thirteen ways to be a cold-hearted person. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, like, let's look at what you should not be. You know, here's the ways that you don't want to be. It was actually, don't you want to be a cold-hearted person? Well, here's 13 ways to do that. The random things that are on the internet, right? Well, today, we have a piece of writing to read that is a far better success plan and from a much more trustworthy source, God's Word. And in it, we have James telling us how to go about getting godly wisdom. And that is something I am confident that every single one of us truly wants. So let's look at this text, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and learn about the ways that God wants us to seek after godly wisdom. You might even say that there's three ways that are all attainable and all worthwhile in seeking after this wisdom. Verse 13 reads, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's a lot in there to work through, but clearly we see what wisdom is not and what wisdom is. So let's jump into it. At the beginning of the text, James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? And to understand this text better, we should probably ask ourselves, why 
Why is James asking that question? Why is he addressing the topic of wisdom in the middle of this book? First, I would think it would be safe to assume that the audience thinks that they are wise. Otherwise, why would James be coming in to challenge them to really think through what wisdom is? Second, it seems like James is questioning their wisdom. He is not quite sure that they understand what it is. Uh, He says, basically, you say you're wise, well, show it. That's what verse 13 says. Who is wise and understanding among you? So you people who think you are wise... By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So on the most basic level, James is saying, your life should show it. You should have certain actions. You should even have a certain demeanor about you. He says, the meekness of wisdom. That word meekness, it does have a sense of humility, but it also just means someone who is gentle, someone who is not harsh. And you think of the context of the whole book of James. And they weren't being very gentle, right? They were fairly harsh with each other. We just learned in last, last week about how they were talking to each other, how they had this harshness. They were saying evil things against each other. They were cursing each other. They were not being kind with their words. I think back to chapter 2, and we learned that they had partiality among each other. Um, even think of the way when James is challenging them to see if they really have faith by their works. Think about the example that he gave them. The example was, if you see a brother or sister in need and you do nothing about it, how do you have faith? It's interesting to think that that's where he goes. That's what he wants them to think about. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to learn in chapter 4 and 5 that they are quarreling, that they are fighting, they are criticizing each other, they are grumbling against each other. It's, it's not confusing why James is questioning whether they really have this wisdom because they are not living it out. And James says, that's how you know if you have wisdom. So if we want wisdom, we have to start by knowing that it's about how we live. So point number one, I said it like this. Realize wisdom is revealed by your actions. Wisdom is revealed by your actions. Wisdom is not about whether you know a lot of Bible. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a really long time. It doesn't matter if you've had a whole lot of experiences in your Christian life. It doesn't matter if people think that you are wise. I mean, a lot of people, they do live a wise life for a while. They are doing the things that they should do, and so they develop a reputation of wisdom. And that can stick around for a while, and that can actually make you think you are wise if you have that kind of reputation. But if it is not who we are today, then we are probably not as wise as we think we are. We are only as wise as our godliest actions. And in theory, I think we all agree with that. We know the definition of wisdom has something to do with the fact that we have knowledge, we have information, and that it translates into skilled living, it translates into the way that we live, so we know that actions are required. But we can be so very gracious with ourselves. We can know what it is that we should do, we can know the wise thing to do, and we could be not doing it, And somehow we still think that we are wise. I'm not necessarily talking about big things, although, of course, that's relevant. 
But even small things, like you know that in order to have good prayer time every day, you know you have to get up at a certain time, but you just won't do it. Or you know that these certain people, if you hang out with them, it's, it's not good for you. It's not a good influence on you, and you just keep doing it. Or you know that it's not wise to watch those certain shows, and you keep doing it. You know that there's things that you should do, and you keep not doing them. Or there's things that you shouldn't do, and you keep doing them. Wise women are women who make wise choices. It reminds me a little of the way I handle my Peloton bike. <laughs> See, I have one of those, and it's sitting very nicely in my garage. It looks beautiful. <laughs> it's supposed to work really effectively. You know those bikes that have all the classes, and yeah, the thing is you have to use it, <laughs> which I haven't been doing it. But I kind of feel like I'm a Peloton person because I have a Peloton bike. I have a username and all that, and I have a history, you know, back in the day. And I even have some gear. Somehow along the way, I've inherited a shirt that has a big fat writing across it, Peloton, and a hat that reads Peloton. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Peloton person, right? I'm a Peloton rider. Clearly, you looking at my life would say, no, you are not. Your actions are not aligning with that title. We are not wise if we are not making wise choices. Wise choices are what wisdom is made up of. And we shouldn't think of ourselves too highly if that isn't the case. Now, on the flip side, if your life is showing increasing wisdom, you are showing by your life that you're learning things and you are putting them into practice, that is reason to praise God. Because that means he is giving you wisdom. And we learned earlier in James chapter 1 that God says that he is generous. He's a generous God, ready to give wisdom without reproach, right? To anyone who asks. He wants to give us his wisdom. And if you are seeing that being displayed in your life, that means that you desired wisdom. That means that you asked for wisdom. That means God gave you the wisdom. And then that means you're doing exactly what you should do with that wisdom. You are living it out. And so when you hear James's question, who is wise and understanding among you, you can confidently raise your hand and say, by God's grace, I am. And it's not arrogant to do so. It's not foolish to think of yourself as wise because God makes clear that wisdom is for the taking. Proverbs 4, 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. So let's get it, right? Day by day, choice by choice. As basic as that is, when it comes to pursuing godly wisdom, we need to realize that it is our actions that we need to look at. Not having the right knowledge, not having the right answers, not having the right reputation. It's good godly conduct that we need to aim for. And when we have that, that's when we have wisdom. And then where James goes in the text next is showing us what's not wisdom. So let's look back at our text. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16, and we'll see what we should not do if we want to be wise. Verse 14, James says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, so notice these are heart issues, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So this is serious. James is saying, you are fooling yourself if you think you are wise and you have these kinds of motives in your heart. He says it's destructive that wherever these motives are, there's disorder and every vile practice, which means every bad practice, every evil practice, every good-for-nothing kind of practice. Basically, every terrible practice comes into place when you have these kind of motives. And he wants them to take serious what it means when they see any hints of this in their heart. And of course, if we want to be wise, we will too. We need to go to war with whatever selfish motives that we find in our hearts. Point number two, be ruthless. Be ruthless with selfish motives. Before we think about how to do that, let's think through exactly what it is that we are battling. The words James used in verse 14 is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy. Bitter just means what we think of it in English. Uh, Another synonym might be resentful. Jealousy, when it's used on its own, it has the idea of zeal. So you put the two together, and it's like a zealous resentment or a passionate resentment. Selfish ambition, in one word, it's one word in Greek, and it's connected to words like strife or hostility. It takes that sense of resentment and it adds ambition to it. So it kind of leads to rivalry among different people. It was used of the politicians back in the day, people who would be serving in these official positions, who would be trying to gain a following, who would be you know, causing problems, kind of creating different parties as they go, and they would be doing it for their own glory. Not at all what should be going on in the heart of any Christian. We know that we are supposed to do nothing from selfish ambition. And obviously, it's not living out the wisdom from God. We have that evil triad that speaks to that, right? The earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly, meaning it's worldly. Uh, Unspiritual, it's nothing like the spirit in us would want us to be like, ungodly. And then the worst of the three, of course, is demonic. So living like a demon would want you to. It might even mean inspired by demons. It's terrible. And sadly, when we look at Scripture, we see that these motives of the heart are not that uncommon. Let's look at a few examples, and we'll see how this can creep into even our godliest actions. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul is talking about how the gospel has been really going out, how Paul has been imprisoned, and that is actually emboldening people to share the gospel more. So Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 reads, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. That word rivalry is the exact same word that James uses in our text for selfish ambition. So some people are preaching Christ from selfish ambition. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul's in prison and they are trying to take advantage of the opportunity. They're trying to be better than Paul. 
Their selfishness is coming out as they are preaching Christ. Let's look at another text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking again, and he is talking to his fellow Christians in Corinth. And he's describing what's going on there in verses 1 through 4. So 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So they're not where they should be, right? They are showing themselves to be spiritually immature. And then it goes on. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So they're acting fleshly. Verse 3 says, it's jealousy and strife. Those, again, are closely connected to selfish ambition in the Greek. And how are they doing it? They're arguing over which spiritual leader is better. That's interesting to think about. That means that they are interested in spiritual things. They're talking about spiritual things, and what do they end up doing? They end up competing about it. You can imagine this kind of thing happening, right? Well, I like this preacher better. Well, I like my pastor better. Well, my church is way more whatever it is than your church. Or my small group, we go way deeper than those small groups over there. It's these things that we care about, that we're excited about, and yet selfish ambition can just creep in and we start competing with each other. One more passage on this, Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus is teaching, and he starts talking about the religious leaders. And while the word selfish ambition is not used, you can clearly see it. He says in verse 5, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And then Jesus goes on to say, they don't get it, right? The person who wants to be great is the person who serves. Um, and then earlier in the text, he says, you know, listen to your religious leaders, do the things that they teach, but don't do the things that they do. And what is it that they're doing? They're not loving. They're not serving. They're trying to make a name for themselves. They are trying to look godly. That's what the phylacteries and the fringes and all that. It was this outward adornment that's supposed to make them look like they're godly people, but they're doing it all for themselves, for their own glory, trying to be great in other people's eyes. Those might seem like extreme examples, but we have the same selfish motives in the church today. We have our our own positions and titles and, you know, these roles that people want. And often there are people clamoring to have whatever the desired position is. Or there's people who are begrudging those people who have the positions or are trying to get the positions. Or nowadays, I think maybe sometimes it's just we want a certain image, right? We want to be seen in a certain way. We want to be seen as the trendy Christian or the fun Christian, the relaxed Christian. <laughs> or maybe we, we want to be seen as the loving Christian, the sacrificial Christian, or we want to be seen as being in the know. Whatever it is, we want to be seen however it is we want to be seen. 
And some of those things could even be good, being loving and sacrificial and all of that. But the problem is when selfish ambition starts creeping in and it becomes all about ourselves, but everybody looking at us and thinking of us in a certain way. Or the type of competing that we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, where they're saying, well, I follow this person, I follow that person, basically saying my leader is better. Well, no, my leader is better. We probably don't say those things out loud very often. But do we ever say them in our hearts? Things like, ooh, I think my quiet time is better than her quiet time. Or I think I take care of my house better than she does. Or I parent my kids much better than they do. Basically, whatever it is that we value, that we think is really important, we want to do those things well. And so we're excited about doing those things well. But then that selfish ambition creeps in, and that's when we start looking at other people, and it becomes a competition. And there's a slight satisfaction when we notice that we are kind of above some of the people that we are looking at. Selfish ambition creeps in fast. It reminds me of the stuff that can grow on shower grout. You know, one day your shower's all clean, and the next day you see this stuff growing. Of course, not in my shower, but I've heard that this kind of thing can happen. <laughs> and it just seems like it comes out of nowhere, right? But of course it didn't, because it was there in microscopic form, and then we left it there, and then it started growing, and then it kept growing. The same is true of our hearts. We got selfishness in there. We got some selfish ambition. And if we leave it there, it grows and it keeps growing. That's how you get to the point of preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, out of competing about whatever spiritual thing we're competing about, or about trying to make yourself look godly, doing all your godliness for the sake of other people. It started because there was these motives in our heart that went unchecked, and we let them grow. We might think, how does this happen, right? As Christians, is this really what should be happening in our hearts? I mean, aren't we clean? Aren't we brand new creations? Is this really what's going on inside of us? If you want to turn there real quick, or you can just jot it down, Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 16 through 17, which clearly shows how this reality does take place within us. Galatians 5, 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Every one of us has this inside of us. We have the Spirit in us once we're saved, but we are still also in our flesh. And we will be until eternity. And so there is this battle that's waging war inside of us where we really do want to be selfless, right? We really do want to do all of our serving and all the things we do with good motives to love God and to love other people. That's who we are. And yet we're still in the flesh. And so part of us wants to be selfish about the whole thing. Part of us does want a little glory or credit or whatever it is that we desire. And those things are going to keep battling. I mean, even think of 1 Corinthians 3. Paul calls them brothers, right? He's saying, you Christians... And then how does he describe them? He says, you're acting fleshly. This is a battle that we will have. It is a battle that we need to expect. 
So one way to be ruthless in this battle, as we expect it, is to act preventatively. When you think of your shower, if you wait until that stuff is all grown all over your grout, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a disaster. But what if you don't wait? What if you maintain it? What if every week you're cleaning your shower, right? You may never see it get gross with our hearts. We need to maintain them. Probably not every week, probably every single day. We go to God and we maintain our hearts. We see if there's any selfish motives in there that we notice, we confess them. We say, God, please forgive me. I see that I was selfish in this thing or that thing. We say, God, help me to have the right motives. Help me the things I'm going to do today. Help me to really want to do them for the right reasons. Help it to be about your glory and not about my glory. That kind of maintenance is key. Nevertheless, there will be times where we will still probably be caught off guard and we will see the grossness in both our showers and in our hearts. And that's when we get out our spiritual scrub brush and the strongest attacking ingredients that we can possibly find, and we get ruthless, and we attack it until we see it no more. Our strongest attacking ingredients, of course, are God's word and prayer. First, we start by thinking, thinking about what it is that we really want. In this selfish ambition that we see, what is it that our hearts are really longing for? What is it that we're after? What kind of glory? What kind of credit? What kind of desire? What is it? And then we look at God's word and we diagnose what we see in our hearts biblically. We find those passages. We study them. We spend time with them. We memorize them. And then we go to God. We confess it and we ask for his help. We say, God, please, I really do want pure motives. I really do want it to be about you and not about myself. I really want my love for people to be genuine. I don't want it to be fake. I don't want to be doing things just to check the box. I really want to do it for you because I love you. And I think just the prayer of saying, God, help me to get over myself. Because we are so busy sometimes in our hearts, in our minds, creating our own little kingdom. And then we think of the God that we serve. He came down and he humbled himself. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came down, and yet we find ourselves trying to clamor up on top of everybody, trying to be above everybody. And it makes no sense to do as a Christian. So pray, God, help me to see the ugliness, see how foolish it is that I'm trying to be big in my eyes and in other people's eyes. I'm sure you can think of other ways to be ruthless with your selfish motives. I think accountability is pretty ruthless, right? To let somebody in to the hidden sins of your heart, that is ruthless. Invite them to ask you, to ask you regularly, how is it going when you serve? What's going on in your heart? Are you fighting those things that you said you wanted to fight? And it reminds me of going to your ugly shower, taking a picture, and texting it to your friend. Nobody wants to do that, right? Nobody wants to admit what their dirty shower would look like. But what it does do, if you sent that picture to a friend, you know what you want to do after you send that picture? You want to go clean up that shower as fast as you can, and you want to take another picture and send it over and say, but look, I cleaned it all up, right? Because you see how nasty it was. You don't want that nastiness out there. 
That's the kind of motivation we should have in cleaning up our hearts and asking God to purify our motives. So invite somebody to know what's going on so that they can ask you. We should want to be done with any selfish motives we see in our hearts. Let's battle it proactively and ruthlessly. And what we'll find as we do is we are ready to treat each other more like God wants us to. And in typical biblical fashion, that's where this text goes next. It kind of has that put off, put on feel. So let's look back at verses 17 through 18. In wisdom language, it's what wisdom is not and what wisdom is. So what wisdom is in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So none of that ugliness, right? We shouldn't have any of that stuff in our hearts, the way we end up treating each other because that's in our hearts. Instead, we should have these characteristics. If we are wise, we will treat each other in these kinds of ways. We will be peaceable and gentle and open to reason and so on. Let's summarize it this way, and then we'll think about what it means. Point number three, be a peacemaker. I'm sure you remember Jesus had this job description for his disciples. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And it's all throughout the New Testament. I did a quick study on all the epistles, and I found something related to peace between people in 17 out of 21 of the epistles. The only place it was not found was in the very small book of Jude and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But then you think of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and you know it has a whole lot to do with how we love one another. And so even that is very closely connected to what a peacemaker is. So every other letter had phrases like, strive for peace with everyone. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Live in harmony with one another. Be at peace among yourselves. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Aim for restoration. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Peace matters to God. If you wanted to define what being a peacemaker is, I have two definitions for you. The first one is kind of a big picture type definition. It's trying to reflect God's character, the God of peace, the God who forgives, he reconciles, and he desires peace even with unworthy sinners. Basically, it's trying to reflect God's character, the God of peace. And in a practical sense, the definition would be it's someone who works hard to graciously get along with others and has that effect on the people around. Someone who works hard to graciously get along with others and has that effect on the people around. And there should be an urgency to this task. Matthew 5, 23, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You're, you're going to worship God. Stop, stop right there. You are not doing the very thing God wants you to do. First go and go deal with it. Go make peace with your brother. Then you can come back and worship God. 
How do we do this? It has a lot to do with the kind of person that we are. And this text is very helpful in that regard because it gives us a whole list of things that we should be, that we should do. So let's work through these descriptions briefly. The first one is pure, which means without moral defect. Basically holy. Someone who pleases God, who wants to please God in their heart, in their motives, in their actions. And that alone makes a big difference in how you treat people if your desire is to please God in all your interactions. It also means that you're going to be someone who wants peaceable relationships because you know that that pleases God. It also means you're going to be someone that handles conflict right, that handles it in a way that pleases God because there is a right way to handle conflict and there's a wrong way to handle conflict. And the wrong way is when you make it all about yourself, when you want to be seen as right, when you are fighting for your rights, when you are arguing for your own benefit. I mean, when it's basically it's about you, you're handling the conflict wrong. You're handling the conflict right when you're making it all about pleasing God. You know, whatever happens, whether I get my way or whether I don't, whether they understand my side or whether they don't, my biggest aim is I want to please God in this. I want to talk in a way that pleases God. I want to say my side in a way that pleases God. And when the restoration comes, I want it to be something that pleases God. That is my aim. And that will massively transform how we deal with conflict if that is our aim above anything else. It also will affect the way we handle interacting with friends when we hear that they are having conflict. Because, of course, we're going to hear that in different conversations. Our aim should be with our Christian sisters, not how to help them fight for their rights, how to help them get what they want. It's to how to help them to please God, to encourage them in that, encourage them that they are being successful, that this argument is going well, even if it's not going well, because they're pleasing God, that they can do the right thing and it is worth it. That's the kind of influence that we should have on the people that we talk to. The next word is peaceable. This means someone who loves peace. So it's someone who works at it because they really desire it. And of course, we don't want conflict in our lives. But do we really love peace? Right? We don't want drama within us, in our relationships. But what about the drama that's out there? I mean, sometimes, is it a little bit interesting, right? Sometimes we wouldn't mind knowing who's mad at who, right? We wouldn't want, mind not knowing uh, who said what about who. We don't want to be the ones in the dark, right? We want to be a little bit more in the know of what's going on out there. But our ears should not perk up when there's drama. We shouldn't want to hear it. We shouldn't want to spread it. We shouldn't want to be entertained by it. Because what we love is peace. We don't desire to be thinking about conflict, spreading conflict, being a part of conflict, enjoying conflict, any of that. And when we love peace, our friends are going to know that we love peace. And that means when they come to us, they know that it's not time to gossip about it and to hash it out. And they know you're not just going to come to their side and make them feel better by talking bad about the other person. They know that they're going to come to you and you're going to help them seek peace 
that that's going to be your aim, not to get all the juicy tidbits, but to push them in the direction of peace. The next word is gentle, which could mean the word gracious. It also means tolerant. So tolerant of the different ways that people are, right? Different personalities, different things that they do, not of unbiblical things, but just not being overly opinionated about things, not being easily annoyed, not being easily irritated. I saw one of those reels, you know, or the short little videos that you watch, and they're usually funny. Um, I thought it was pretty funny. There was a couple, you saw the husband and the wife, and in this, you're seeing the wife's thoughts. And the husband is there eating his cereal or something. And the wife said something like, it's funny, I love this man so much, I would die for him. But if he doesn't start chewing quieter, I'm going to take him to his grave. (laughs) And I think, that's kind of how we are, right? Sometimes we're a little too irritable. And that's how a lot of our conflicts start. And that's what a lot of our conflicts are actually about, right? If we stop being so irritable and so easily annoyed, so opinionated about how everything should be, we probably wouldn't have so much conflict. Maybe half of it would just go away if we had this demeanor of gentleness. The next one is open to reason, which simply means reasonable. Being someone who is reasonable. So that means being willing to see things from other people's perspective, not being stuck in your ways. And this is not natural. We do not come out at birth ready to be reasonable, ready to see things from other people's perspectives. I mean, I can think of kids' examples, and I'm sure you can too if you know children, the way that they argue. They just have their statement, and the other one has their statement, and they just go back and forth, back and forth, saying the same thing, like, I want her to turn her music down. I can't think. Well, she never lets me turn my music on. And they just go back and forth saying the same thing, never thinking about how the other person feels or how they could come up with a reasonable solution in this. And yet we are often the same way because we think how we think, right? We see things from our own perspective, right? I mean, that makes sense. So it takes really hard work to get out of ourselves and to try to think, what is the other person thinking? How could I see it from their vantage point? But that's what reasonable people do. Reasonable people are also going to get the log out of their own eye before they inspect the speck in their brothers. And isn't that such a good visual? You know, you think, got a log in my own eye, and I'm busy over there critiquing the speck in my brothers. That's not a reasonable thing to do. We should first be looking at ourselves, right, seeing what is it that we need to do differently? How is it that we could have offended somebody or wronged them from their perspective? Do I have any possible sin in this situation that I could confess, that I could apologize for, ask for forgiveness for? We should be getting the log out of our eye anytime that there's conflict, first looking at ourselves. Next, we have full of mercy and good fruits. Those are put together grammatically in the Greek and taken together, you know, it means compassionate, um, having care, having lots of kindness for people. Merciful means that we are willing to overlook offenses. Not everything that goes on that offends us needs to be a big deal. I was reading a book, I'd recommend it, Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy, and he does a good job describing 
what it should be like as we overlook offenses. He gave the example of the fact that we all want to be good drivers, right? We all do a decent job trying to be decent drivers, but we all make mistakes. We don't try to, but every once in a while, we don't turn our blinker on when we should. Sometimes we don't change lanes like we should. Sometimes we accidentally cut people off. Not all the time, but these things happen, right? How do we want the other drivers to handle us? I mean, what if every time we made a driving mistake, someone stopped us and critiqued us? He said, come on, be gracious. I didn't mean to. It was an accident. And of course, that's what we want for us. That's how we should be for other people. And that's how we should be in life. Because people aren't trying to constantly offend you. Sometimes people say things the wrong way. Some people say things that they shouldn't say and they didn't mean to. They might forget something that meant something to you and they didn't mean to. If it's not a big deal, maybe it's something that we can overlook. Of course, not if it's something where they are massively displeasing God. Well, that needs to be addressed. Or if it's really ruining your relationship and there's conflict there. Well, yeah, those things should be addressed. But there's some things that just don't need to be. The Proverbs say it is a glory to overlook an offense. So whenever we can, we should. Next one is impartial, which means without prejudice, you know, not taking sides selfishly as we hear of different arguments. Uh, it could bring us back to what we learned about in chapter two about partiality. The next word is sincere. So without hypocrisy, not playing a part, genuinely loving people. People know if you are genuinely loving them as you deal with conflict. And sometimes conflict doesn't go well because they can tell that you're not. They can tell that you just want to be done with it. You don't care that much, you just want to move on. Or that you're barely listening to their side of things because you only really care about your side. We need to be people who are <clears throat> sincere, truly loving others. And the final phrase here, the summary or the effect of all of this, is in a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So righteousness follows peace. Or you could say being a peacemaker is a fruitful thing. And it's hard, right? It's messy work. It never feels good, but it produces much good. So we need to know how to do it because conflict will come. That is what we should expect in this life being a sinner ourselves, among other sinners, we're going to have conflict and we're going to need to learn how to be peacemakers. Let's read those last two verses one more time as we put it all together and think through how God wants us to be in our relationships. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, desiring to please God, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If we want to be wise, that is the kind of person that we will be. This is quite the assignment. In fact, I'd say all of this passage is quite the assignment. I picture how James started this passage with this question, who is wise and understanding among you? It reminds me of being in a classroom setting where the teacher asks, who did the assignment? And she wants everyone to raise their hand who did the assignment. And you have those kids who confidently raise their hand. Yes, I did it. 
And then you have the rest of them who are kind of sinking in their chair, you know, looking down, trying not to look at the teacher. You remember that, right? And put yourself back in the shoes of a student, and the teacher asks, who did the assignment? In that moment, aren't you so glad if you did it? Yes, I did it. I mean, especially if it's a teacher that you really admire, a teacher that you really respect. You're so glad that you did. Or think if you didn't do the assignment, how are you feeling in that moment? There's that regret, right? Oh, I wish I would have done it. I knew that I should. I didn't do it. I teach a couple classes at my kids' school, and I like to up the stakes when it comes to their homework. I like to give them rewards. Why do I want to do that? Because I really want them to do the assignment. Because it's for their good. And then you think that you have James by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, who is wise and understanding among you? I mean, to us today, God is basically asking, who is wise? Who is doing the assignment? And put yourself in God's classroom. And that question is being asked, who did the assignment? Or better yet, who is doing that assignment? Who is really seeking after godly wisdom? In that moment, that's when you want to raise your hand. That's when you want to say, yes, absolutely, I am doing all that I can to seek after godly wisdom. In God's classroom, that is not when you want to be sinking in your chair ashamed. You want to do whatever it is that God wants you to do. You don't want to miss out on the rewards of wisdom. You want to do the thing that God says is for your best. Let's truly seek after this godly wisdom. Let's remember that it's our actions that God is after. Let's fight the ugly motives that we have towards each other. And let's be the kind of people who are peacemakers. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your kindness that you have not left us alone to live on this world to try to please you on our own. You've given us the spirit and you've promised us your wisdom. You said that anyone who asks, you will graciously give your wisdom to. God, that is what we want. We want to live life the way you would want us to, having the kind of godly wisdom that you graciously give. I pray that we would ask for it, that we would seek it, I pray that we would show it in our actions, that we would see that maybe there's times when we are not as wise as we should be. I pray that we wouldn't bank on the fact that we are wise because we once were wise, because people think that we're wise. I pray that we would look at our lives real honestly, and we would seek this wisdom in the depths of our heart when no one else is around, in the quiet of our home, that we would be making those choices that make us wise women even when no one's looking. I pray that we would see the ugliness in our hearts. We want to be women who please you. We don't want to do things for our own selfish motives. We want to bring you glory. We want to love you. We want to love others. So help us to do that better. Help us to see where that ugliness creeps up and help us to fight it. And I pray that we would treat each other well. I know that's so important to you and we can forget that. We can think our spiritual lives are about so many different things and we can forget how crucial it is that we love each other, that we are open to reason and gentle and kind and merciful and all of these things, God. I pray that you would help us to be those kind of women 
and that we would see it even in the lack of drama in our lives because these are the things we're focusing on that makes us the kind of person where drama is not to be found. I pray that we'd have that kind of effect on the people around us. Lord, help us to be more godly this week and to become more godly over this next year. In Jesus' name, amen.